After the remnants of Hurricane Ida dropped historic levels of rainfall on New York City streets, resulting in massive flooding and extensive property damage, Mayor Bill de Blasio has unveiled an ambitious $2.5 billion resiliency blueprint to help safeguard the city from future inclement weather events. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance public interest and advocacy reporter Paul Leota to discuss New York City's latest plan to protect residents from the growing threat of extreme weather. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. I know it's a very busy time of year for you with Election Day right around the corner now. I think most of our listeners know that we'll be electing a new mayor this year, but there's actually a lot of other races that Staten Islanders should probably be keeping an eye on. Can you talk a little bit about some of those? For sure. I mean, yeah, like you said, there's a lot to be aware of this year. Citywide, there's also the public advocate election, the comptroller election, in addition to the mayor. To some extent, I think most analysts see these as foregone conclusions with Democrats winning. But uh, locally, we have, you know, at least two races that are expected to be close. The Mid-Island City Council race and the Borough President's race. Uh, In addition to that, there's also a North Shore City Council race and the South Shore City Council race. There's a lot of... A lot of choices this year, but also, in addition, there are five ballot questions that will affect both the state constitution and the city charter, depending on how people vote. Yeah, any year that you've got some ballot questions on there, it definitely adds a little uh, a little spice to it that some other years may not. But I'm also really interested in some of those city council races that you mentioned, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, two of the existing city council members are, are now term limited out of their spots, correct? Is that uh, North Shore with Debbie Rose and in Mid-Island with Stephen Matteo? So we will have new representatives regardless of the outcome in those districts. Is that right? For sure. Joe Borelli is the only one who had the opportunity to run again. Uh, and he will have the opportunity to run again in 2022. It's a, it's a quick turnaround this time because of the uh, redistricting process. So the Mid-Island seat is up for grab. Conservative George Wanaka, Democrat Sal Albanese, and uh, Republican candidate David Carr are vying for that seat. Uh, Carr is actually Matteo's chief of staff. I think he's looking to keep the trend going since Matteo was Otto's chief of staff and Otto was Don Fusco's chief of staff sort of keep that coaching tree alive, but should be interesting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So there's certainly a lot for Staten Island voters to think about in the coming weeks, uh, especially on that North Shore and in the Mid-Island where they will have new representatives for the first time in in quite some time. But let's get to the reason that we have you on today, and that's to discuss this new $2.5 billion resiliency plan that Mayor Bill de Blasio announced on September 27th. Can you give me kind of a general overview of of what's in that plan before we dive a little deeper into the specifics? I mean, I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit at the start. You know, whenever these big storms happen, you know, after Sandy, after Ida, when people are sort of devastated, the question becomes like, well, what are we going to do about it? And the honest answers for those are usually long-term infrastructure that will take, you know, 10 years. But Ida happened, it was with a significant amount of... Uh, hurricane season left. And one of the obvious questions became, you know, what are we doing in the immediate future to protect these people who are apparently now at risk when we have heavy rain? Like, because heavy rain means a new thing now. Significant inches and short periods of time that lead to flash flooding. You know, things we haven't really seen on Staten Island before. We learned from Ida that we have to do some very, very different things 
to even understand what's coming at us, to prepare for it, to alert people, to educate people. Bill de Blasio is the mayor of New York City. A whole different host of things and major changes in what we're going to do going forward for years and years to deal with a whole different kind of weather than we've ever known before. I think this plan was to sort of ensure that the ball is rolling. I don't want to say get the ball rolling because obviously I think most of the nation has been focused on this for over a decade now. Probably not to the extent that they should be focused on it, but it is something we've been talking about for a long time. But yeah, I think the idea behind this extreme weather blueprint was uh, to sort of ensure or to reassure people that the city does have a plan, that the city is focused on addressing these issues and making sure people are safe, basically. Yeah. And so that $2.5 billion price tag, you know, seems like a lot to people, I think. So can you talk a little bit about how that's being broken down and the different ways that they'll be using that funding? Uh, for sure. So it's it's $2.7 billion. Most of the funding is new funding for the, for the DEP. So yeah, it's $2.1 billion in new funding for the Department of Environmental Protection. And then there, there's accelerated funding, $238 million for the DEP and uh, $400 million dedicated to uh, capital projects at departments like NYCHA, the DOT, the Parks Department, School Construction Authority. I think, in a way, it was the city's, again, sort of reassuring New Yorkers that we do have these things in place, you know, we have these focuses, and this is how we are going to rededicate ourselves to ensuring people are safe and to speeding up the processes that are already in place. Yeah, and, and so you mentioned that this new plan was released less than a month after New York City was slammed by Hurricane Ida, uh, which caused really massive flooding throughout the city, with Staten Island being hit particularly hard. But, I mean, it was really everywhere. We saw some of the viral tweets uh, from Manhattan and, and some other boroughs of the subway flooding. But on Staten Island, can you give us kind of a, a brief recap of, of that storm and some of the damages that we saw throughout the borough? On Staten Island, when people think of, you know, severe weather, severe storms, their mind generally goes to Sandy and to the East Shore. You know, neighborhoods like Midland Beach, uh, Oakwood Beach, South Beach, essentially the entire Eastern Shore that was decimated after Sandy. But this was something different. Like, a lot of those neighborhoods were still affected, like uh, mayoral candidate Eric Adams, for example, toured Midland Beach after the storm. He saw some of the devastation. But there were also like more inland places that were hit really like devastatingly hard. There was a section of Rosebank that Governor Hochul came to. I mean, these people were telling me that I think it was they were talking about like ten feet of water on both ends of their block, and it was just it got to the point like they didn't know what they were going to do. Uh, thankfully, like nobody got hurt, but their homes were devastated. Basement apartments around the city, in particular, were absolutely. You know, decimated. And I think it was something that people didn't necessarily expect to the extent that it happened. I think there's a lot of politicians after the storm were saying like, well, we didn't know this was coming. The National Weather Service was warning to an, at least some extent that we were due for some flash flooding. But this was something that we hadn't really seen. And I remember talking about people with it the days after and people affected by it. And like my family was hit pretty hard by Sandy. But, like, after Sandy, there was this, like, massive national response. The president was in Midland Beach. Like, President Obama was in Midland Beach. There was, like, an army base set up in Miller Field. The level of response, it just outpaced what we saw after Ida. I think the visual, at least, of a massive tidal wave, essentially, coming in 
and inundating entire neighborhoods is different than rain. But I mean, the effects that the people feel aren't any different. I mean, there was one neighborhood over in the western part of Westerly. It looked like Midland Beach after Sandy. Cars were out of place. People were just like in the street with their waterlogged belongings. And I mean, I don't know if those people are getting the same attention that people got after Sandy, which is you know, extremely unfortunate. Yeah, and you raised a lot of good points there. One thing that I had also heard from a lot of people is that they felt as though they were not adequately warned about the extent of the flooding that we might experience. You know, we had heard that there was going to be some rain, but we didn't realize that it was going to be as devastating as it ended up being. And also the fact that a lot of places that aren't always as hard hit during these storms were affected because it wasn't like Sandy where it was big storm surge coming off the off the water it was more just torrential downpours and just water accumulating in that way so there were areas that weren't necessarily uh, near the coasts that experienced this in a way that they may not have during previous storms and that kind of makes you recalibrate what you think about which areas need the most attention in these types of extreme weather events because you know we're prioritizing places near the shore as we should be but there are also places in the middle of the island that are that are being affected and and like you said there were people had to abandon their cars all over the borough because the water was so high they couldn't drive through it i mean you had whole you know buildings being flooded and people being evacuated from them in certain neighborhoods we saw at the castleton bus depot in port richmond there was extensive flooding millions of dollars in damages with dozens of buses being severely damaged we've heard that there was up to four or five feet of flood water in there so uh, it, it really just makes you think about the ways that we need to kind of think about things differently and and address this in a more holistic way as opposed to just i mean obviously like i said the shores take priority we have the east shore seawall project that we discussed with you last time if you haven't listened to that podcast yet please feel free to go back and and give it a listen but it it just really makes you think about how we need to kind of reevaluate moving forward and that actually kind of leads me into my next topic so the report is titled the new normal combating storm related extreme weather in new york city referring to the fact that the frequency with which new york city is being impacted by these major storms has increased pretty drastically in recent years so why do officials think that that this is happening and why is it so important for the city to kind of rethink its existing storm management practices in light of this recent uptick? I think it's what we've been talking about for for decades now. I guess people, my brain for some reason just always goes to uh, Al Gore and The Inconvenient Truth, that movie he did in like the 2000s, where, I mean, people have been warning about this for decades and I think for people to realize something is coming, it has to get here, if that makes sense. And I think what people are saying now is this thing that they've been warning about is coming is here. Ida brought record rainfalls, right? But for some reason, what's been put on, like, to the back of people's minds is that a week before, I remember driving home in it, it was the same kind of, like, torrential downpour. And it brought, like, record-setting rain totals in Central Park that were just broken a week and a half later by Ida. You know, it it is an unprecedented amount of rain. Um, You know, the climate's changing uh, faster and we can keep up with it. Carter Strickland is the New York State Director for the Trust for Public Land. And it does take the kind of concentrated effort that we see in this report. I think the message that people are trying to get across 
or have been trying to get across, like I said, for decades now, is that we're not going to be able to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. We're not going to be able to live the same way we did. We're not going to be able to like consume energy the same way we have. We're not going to be able to, you know, live the lives that I think people, particularly in America, have become accustomed to. And that is something that is going to take a lot of convincing still, a lot of education. And I mean, there are going to be people who, who resist those sorts of things. So I think this blueprint in a way, I mean, the first, uh, there's like eight bullet points at the top of the blueprint. And the first one is about educating people, about educating like the risks of where you live, like what you need to be aware of, like where you need to keep your eyes out when there's a storm coming, who to alert if you're in trouble, like when to get out of the house, when to like, you know, to alert them that we might force you to leave your house at some point when a storm's coming. And I think that's, there's a lot of work to do there just in that regard of like, helping people understand that we are in like a new reality. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that is not at all exclusive to to us here in New York City or, or on Staten Island. This is something that we're seeing across the country, across the world, really, with these extreme weather events and, you know, additional, you know, more wildfires and, and tornadoes in New Jersey and, and hurricanes coming more frequently and hit, hitting harder in, in, you know, parts of the southeast and all, all of these different things that kind of have to recalibrate the way that we think about it and, and realize that it's something that we're going to have to deal with on a more regular basis, which is why things like this that kind of help prepare us for that factor are so important in my mind. So, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me in the report is that the city plans to continue growing Staten Island's Blue Belt system and and potentially expand it to other boroughs as well. For the listeners who may not be aware, can you tell us uh, a little bit about that Blue Belt program and, and how it helps Staten Island handle some of the flooding that we see during these storms? I think the best way to describe the Blue Belt is that like it's man-made infrastructure that works with nature instead of against it. It started on the South Shore decades ago. They realized that they could improve drainage, storm runoff drainage significantly if they worked with the existing nature and built you know, systems that direct water into that exi- those existing nature systems and sort of build out the nature systems. And the one that I'm most familiar with is the one that's in between Dungan Hills and Midland Beach. It's called the uh, New Creek Blue Belt. That is from a, the, the idea generated from a tour of Midland Beach. So a section on like the southern side of Greeley Avenue, along like Colony. Mm-hmm. Carl Burrow Presentado, who was a councilman at the time, was touring with the DEP and other officials and this guy with the DEP, his idea was, well, the way that the slope of the neighborhood is, we could put in storm sewers and the water will run into the creek. And so just in terms of Ida, right? So that storm would have flooded my block 15 years ago, easy. No question about it. We'd have probably had like Irene level type stuff, nothing like Sandy, but it would have been very like unfortunate, you know, new electronics, new furniture, new whole thing. I don't know if it's entirely because of the Blue Belt, but I live right next to part of it, and we got maybe half an inch of water, if that. And that was honestly because I wasn't, like, being as alert as I should have been. Because, I mean, this summer alone is one of the wettest I remember in my lifetime, and that was the only water we got in the house, which is, like, unheard of for us. So whatever the Blue Belt's doing... They seem to be working, at least in Midland Beach, in part of Midland Beach. There's still 
sections of neighborhood, uh, sections of the neighborhood, particularly like uh, along Grimsby Street, that is still like it, it's unacceptable what goes on there whenever it rains. But they seem to be working, and yeah, the city is talking about expanding them. There's parts of Queens, parts of Brooklyn, might be a couple parts of the Bronx that like makes sense for it. And on Staten Island, they're expanding it too. They're doing one up in Old Town. And uh, I think they're doing a couple more around the borough that they want to, you know, further develop this thing that does really genuinely seem to be working. And the best part is it has like extreme bipartisan support. The city's on board with it. Senator Lanza, who is a lifelong Staten Islander, he is one of the people who kind of got the ball rolling on Greenbelts. He's a big supporter of them. He is an outspoken advocate for them. And... Things get a lot easier, particularly in these climate change issues, when there is some degree of bipartisan support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Blue Belt program is is really interesting and really great for a number of reasons. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, it's a way that the city can input new infrastructure that will help alleviate some of this flooding, but doing it in a way that maintains the natural environment in a lot of these places, which on Staten Island we know is a huge deal. We are the borough of parks. We have all of this green land that the, you know we don't necessarily have in, in other boroughs. So for them to be able to do things like enhance the drainage of these natural creeks and, and these wetlands and kind of redirect the, the stormwater there and, and increase their holding capacity so the, so the water doesn't spill off into the street while maintaining that you know natural environment that we have is is something that is has been really beneficial throughout the years so and as you said a lot of these other infrastructure projects long term that that would need to be put into place you know take decades sometimes um, to actually get done, which I know is something that has frustrated local elected officials here. But so let's move on to some other stuff in the report. Another thing I thought was really interesting was that City Hall was going to create this new position. They were going to call them the extreme weather coordinator. So what exactly is an extreme weather coordinator? And uh, have we named our first New York City extreme weather coordinator yet? So there is, I guess... The word wouldn't be interim, but there is a starter in the position. It's the deputy mayor for administration, Emma Wolf. So like I said, sort of at the top, a lot of people said we needed more significant alerts for these kinds of storms. And I think the idea is of the extreme weather coordinators ensuring that there's somebody in City Hall whose responsibility it is to fully prepare for these sorts of events. I think the mayor compared it to the, the counterterrorism part of the NYPD after 9-11. So basically after 9-11, it was this idea that, well, we need local alert systems, local a local focus on this you know international issue. And I think the position of the extreme weather coordinator will be responsible for leading the city through these extreme weather events. Things like Sandy, things like Ida, you know, whatever else we're going to see in the next in, in the coming decades, it it seems like a good idea. I, I can't definitely can't say it could hurt. I mean, it it it's important for the city to have that local focus and that point person who will run operations, coordinating all the various city agencies to address these issues when they pop up. Because like federal government, National Weather Service is a federal agency. What the federal government does most of the time, and this is just the way the country works, is that they come in after the disasters happen and say, how can we help? Like at best, that's what they do, hopefully. And in 
I think in the lead up to storms, the city wanted someone who could act as that go-to person to address these issues. So at some point, an official weather coordinator will be appointed by the mayor. I mean, de Blasio has three months left in his term. And uh, but for now, it's deputy mayor for administration. Mayor Wolf is filling the role. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird when I first read it, uh, just the idea of it. But as you talked about it a little more, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you talk about, you know, having to coordinate between all of these different city agencies, right? Because it's not just one agency that's going to be responsible for storm cleanup. You've got obviously DEP who, who's handling some of this stuff, but then you've got DOT, kind of the fallout on the roads, and you've got, you know, how is this going to affect schools potentially? How does this impact? The the different the housing uh you know uh, authority and and all of these different things so having that one central person in city hall who can kind of like you said play the play the point role and, and work to bring all of those agencies together and keep them on the same page i think is is actually something that's going to be very valuable moving forward so in addition to creating that new role and expanding upon some existing programs like we mentioned with the blue belts there were also some new programs that were announced in the report one of them was a partnership with a private weather service which I thought was kind of interesting. And then they announced some plans to work with community-based organizations to help distribute evacuation information and resources to, to vulnerable communities, which you also touched on earlier. Can you just tell me a little bit more about some of these new programs? For sure. The private weather service, I, I just remember during the press conference announcing the blueprint, uh, was one of the more uh, head-scratching ones. Because, I mean, like I've been saying, we have the National Weather Service I think that this is more, the mayor hasn't identified yet which private agency it's going to be, but it's that supplemental idea again, if the National Weather Service isn't, maybe isn't sounding the alarm as well as it should be, the city will have this extra layer of an alert system for them to go to and they can then tell the city like, well, now it's time to get people moving, it's time to get ready for what could be a very impactful storm. In a lot of uh, particularly more vulnerable communities, poor communities, immigrant communities, communities that just don't have a lot of like interaction with or don't have a lot of positive interaction with city government, who, who they turn to is these community-based organizations. Uh, things like Project Hospitality, things like La Comena, these different organizations that come to mind, they do a lot of good work around the city in Staten Island as well, obviously, those are Staten Island organizations. But they do a lot of good work around the city, and they work with these more vulnerable communities. And I think the city is partnering with them in an effort to, you know, make a headway into these communities who might not be watching the news, who might not be getting updates from the mayor's office, might not even be paying attention to what the mayor is saying every day. I'm like, we have to do for our jobs. But yeah, I, again, I think it's because we all have become familiar with these like nationwide phone alerts that go out whenever there's like an amber alert or, uh, or an incoming storm or something like that. But again, I think this is a way to, you know, make headway into these communities who don't have, who don't have the resources and don't always have the familiarity with city government for them to begin to understand like, hey, listen, we're trying to help you. Like, this is how we can help you. You need to be aware of these issues and these are people you trust. So that's why we're working with them. 
Yeah, and I'm kind of in the same boat where the the private weather service thing was it was a bit strange to me at first. Thinking of New York City collaborating with AccuWeather or whoever it may be on this on this new program, but the community based organizations, as you mentioned, makes a lot of sense to me because there are a lot of people on Staten Island who have some level of distrust um, in the government, and they are you know much more comfortable with people from these organizations who they deal with on a more regular basis, who they know have helped them in the past, and who they know are looking out for their best interests. So having those people kind of going and and giving the evacuation resources and telling them this is what's going on, you need to be prepared for it, they're probably more likely to trust those people than they would be if it was someone from City Hall, you know, coming and knocking on their door. So I I think that one will, will definitely help moving forward. So we talked about some of the benefits of the of the new plan. Uh, earlier this week, though, our colleague Joseph Ostapiuk, he reported that some climate scientists that he spoke with have voiced a couple concerns about some shortcomings in the plan. One of them I thought was kind of interesting was that there could be this issue of, of warning fatigue, right? If you get these new alert systems and every time there's a storm, we're sending something, something out telling people they may need to evacuate or they may need to do this. And then if the storm isn't that serious, it, you kind of end up with a, a boy who cried wolf situation where you keep getting alerts, you keep getting alerts, you, you, then eventually you stop listening to them and then the really bad storm comes. So th- that's one issue. Like one of the key takeaways was that they're going to, this is their language, plan for the worst case scenario in every instance. And I'm concerned that if we're not preparing for the actual scenario, we're preparing for the worst case scenario, we're going to end up evacuating people too often, moving people out of subways, not allowing people to get to work in climate events that are not as severe as what we saw. Amy Chester is the managing director of Rebuild by Design. And what happens when you do that is that people stop paying attention to it. There was some other stuff about the door-to-door outreach because, as you mentioned, a lot of these people who are uh, hit hardest during these storms are people in basement apartments. People residing in basement apartments are not always, not that they are not legally there, it's not legally registered as a basement apartment, so there may be some issues with whether the the landlords are informing the city that there's someone in that basement or, or whatever it may be. And then also there's the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, de Blasio's out of office in January, right? So like, is the the next mayor going to kind of stick with this plan and, and continue these initiatives moving forward? So, I mean, take your pick of, of, of those kind of three things there. What, what about these concerns do you, do you think are, you know, the most valid? Yeah, I, mean, I think they're all valid. I know warning fatigue, like, firsthand, I guess. Yeah, just like before Sandy, my parents were, like, in the house when Sandy happened. So they had both experienced warning fatigue to some extent. Like, they had done so many warnings, like, even with Irene that they got to the point that they weren't taking anything seriously and they stayed at home. So, I mean, that is a very real thing and something that I don't know if it's being considered, but I don't really know if it, if it necessarily needs to be considered anymore because, like we said before, like, we're here. It's, it's here. But, yeah, at any rate, the, the idea of, like, the warning systems and the fact that the mayor is at the end of his term I asked about I asked him about that on Monday. He said he'd been in contact with Eric Adams, who is the Democratic candidate. I think most people would say the expected next mayor. But from what the mayor said, it sounds like he intends to pick up the torch, pick up the baton, as it were, and sort of carry on this vision of that the mayor is laying out now and start to 
really having a focus on these 10, 20 year projects that we need to get done if we're going to like keep people safe. I mean, we're talking about new sewers, we're talking about blue belts, we're talking about the seawall, which is obviously a federal project, but that is, again, another layer to it. Part of the blueprint is the mayor calling for more federal and state aid. There's the whole infrastructure debate going on in Washington now. It seems that for some reason, this hasn't necessarily hit people fully yet because the bill that is the issue is the one that has the, the climate change stuff. So it, it remains to be seen if these storms are going to like give that necessary jolt to the government and get the federal government involved in like pushing us into a prepared position, which I think most experts would contend that we're not in right now. Yeah, and and so it seems like there's certainly still a, a whole lot of work to be done on this topic, but it is good to see that local officials are thinking about it and are planning for the future in that way. So thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. As someone who is an expert in Staten Island flooding, both personally and professionally, we always appreciate your insight on these topics. So keep up the great work, and I look forward to having you on again soon. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Did you know, on November 1st, 1683, Staten Island was named Richmond County after the Duke of Richmond, Charles Lennox, an illegitimate son of King Charles II? Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and visit silive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.